from the Chief Executives Club at Queen's University Belfast, Reflections on Female Leadership, an in-conversation event with leaders of the Northern Ireland Executive and Civil Service, held on the 10th of May 2021, with First Minister Arlene Foster, Deputy First Minister Michelle O'Neill, and Interim Head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service, Jenny Piper. Hosted by Professor Karen McCluskey, and with an introduction and conclusion from the President and Vice-Chancellor of Queen's, Professor Ian Greer. Good afternoon. I'm delighted to welcome you all to this special Chief Executives Club event, Reflections of Female Leadership. With a special welcome to our speakers, Arlene Foster, MLA, First Minister of Northern Ireland and Party Leader of the DUP, Michelle O'Neill, MLA, Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland and Vice President of Sinn Féin, and Jenny Piper, Interim Head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Arlene, Michelle, Jenny, we very much look forward to hearing your personal reflections on your leadership journeys. <clears throat> and I'm delighted that the Director of the Gender Initiative here at Queen's, Professor Karen McCluskey, will host a Q&A session. So we look forward to questions from our guests. At Queen's, we're enormously proud of our track record of promoting equality of opportunity to all in our community, and particularly our record in gender equality. In a recent interview with the US Consul General in Belfast, Elizabeth Kennedy Trudeau uh, spoke to our Chancellor, Secretary Hillary Clinton, and she commented that women's voices and women's experiences are not an add-on, they're not a nice to do, they're necessary. And with that quote in mind, I'll now hand you over to Karen. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you, Vice Chancellor. As Professor Greer has said, my name is Karen McCluskey, and I'm a professor in the Queen's School of Medicine, Dentistry, and Biomedical Sciences. But I've been invited to take part in this important discussion around female leadership through my position as director of the Queen's Gender Initiative. Professor Greer has already mentioned QGI. The QGI team works with colleagues across Queen's to increase the visibility, participation and the progression of women. The institutional and school level Athena Swan Awards that we hold for gender equality testify to the work that we have carried out since 2000 to improve work policies and practices for everyone. I am now delighted to introduce very briefly each of our three guest speakers. If I were to try to summarize their careers in full and all their achievements, there would be no time for anything else. And after that, each speaker will in turn share with us a little of their own leadership journeys and experiences. Our first guest speaker will be Mrs. Arlene Foster, MLA. Mrs. Foster has served as First Minister of Northern Ireland since January 2020, and prior to this, from 2016 to 2017. She has also served as leader of the Democratic Unionist Party since 2015, and is the first woman to hold either of these leadership positions. She has been a member of the Northern Ireland Assembly for Fermanagh and South Tyrone since 2003. Mrs Foster has also served in the Northern Ireland Executive as Minister for the Environment, Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Investment and Minister for Finance and Personnel. Mrs Foster's political career began when she was studying for a law degree here at Queen's. During this time, she joined the Queen's Unionist Association and she remained active in politics after leaving Queen's and was an elected councillor on Fermanagh District Council from 2005 to 2010, representing Enniskillen. 
The second speaker we will hear from is Mrs. Michelle O'Neill, MLA, Deputy First Minister since January 2020. She's also Vice President of Sinn Féin since 2018. Mrs. O'Neill has previously served in the Northern Ireland Executive as Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development and as Minister of Health. She was elected as a member of the Northern Ireland Assembly for Mid-Ulster in 2007. Mrs. O'Neill also pursued a career in politics from a young age. She was an elected councillor on Dungannon and South Tyrone Council from 2005 to 2010. In 2010, she became the first woman and was one of the youngest people to be elected as Mayor of Dungannon. Our third speaker this afternoon will be Ms. Jenny Piper. Ms. Piper was appointed as interim head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service on the 1st of December 2020, responsible for a workforce of some 22,000 people. Again, the first woman to hold this senior position. She is also secretary to the Northern Ireland Executive. In addition, Ms. Piper is currently Pro-Chancellor of Ulster University, where she also chairs the University Council, and she sits on the Board of Business in the Community Northern Ireland. Prior to heading up the Northern Ireland Civil Service, Ms. Piper was Chief Executive of the Utility Regulator, responsible for the economic regulation of Northern Ireland's electricity, gas, water and sewage industries. Ms. Piper is also a graduate of Queen's. She joined the civil service in 1985 and was appointed to the senior civil service in 2004, where she served as Director of Energy Policy in the Department for the Economy and Director of Regional Development in DRD, now the Department for Infrastructure. She was then appointed as Deputy Permanent Secretary in the Department for Social Development, now known as the Department for Communities in 2011. I'm sure you'll agree all three of our speakers have had extremely successful careers and we look forward to hearing a little about their leadership experiences. I now invite the First Minister to speak. Thank you. Good afternoon everybody and thank you very much for the opportunity and I commend the Chief Executives Club at Queen's University for the efforts in seeking to promote and address some of the challenges of leadership this, of course, is a very timely discussion for all sorts of reasons. When I was growing up a few miles from Clonus on the fermanagh monaghan border in the 1970s, uh, women in leadership was not a subject on most people's lips. In those days, leadership in public life was male-dominated, but it was also an extraordinarily uh, dangerous place to be. Chief executives, civil servants, judges, police officers, lawyers and politicians were all defined as legitimate targets by those intent on murder. So being in leadership in the 1970s didn't mean that you would be criticised on social media because it didn't exist. It meant instead uh, that your name could very easily be on a terrorist watch list in some dark place in Northern Ireland. So whether it was the experience within my own family, with daddy or on the bus with my fellow pupils uh, in this mosque, being a woman in leadership was not my central motivation. My motivation came from the fact that this could not go on and I wanted the bloodshed to end. My motivation came from my love of this place, the fact that it could be better and wanting to drive the change to make Northern Ireland the best it could be. And my motivation came from knowing that my good neighbours uh, were there and knowing that they were struggling to make a living just as we were. 
So two things gave me self-esteem and the inner strength to go on into politics as a young woman. The first was my involvement with the uniformed organisation, The Girl Guides, an organisation which believed in giving young girls the tools to go into the modern world. Sometimes I think we underestimate the role of our uniformed organisations in the life of our young people, and I do urge the chief executives on the call to support them and all that they do. The second thing that really uh, gave me the tools to go forward was going to an all-girls grammar school, which gave me the space to develop who I was and indeed what I believed in, in a safe and affirming environment. Then, of course, to Queen's. And when I was a student at this university, most of the top public profile jobs were indeed held by men. But yet, our Prime Minister was a female, Margaret Thatcher. The glass ceiling was being cracked right from the top of politics uh, in the United Kingdom. And by holding such a high office, Margaret Thatcher ensured that when men came to meetings, they realised that women weren't just there to make the tea. They were there to make a meaningful contribution to the debate. And we all understand that when we see something, of course, it is much more easier to believe. So right throughout my formative teenage years, the Prime Minister of my country was a woman. And looking back now, I know that that had a huge impact on my belief that as a young woman, I too had a political voice and it could be heard. Of course, when I was a student at Queen's in my second year, I witnessed the end of Margaret Thatcher's premiership. My final year dissertation in my four-year law degree assessed the barriers to female participation in politics. I looked at the experience of women in politics here and concluded that the main barriers were attitudinal, and so it remains today. In the 1990s, we didn't have the social media onslaught, but the attitudes of society still had a long way to go. And of course, progress has been made. Of the five main political parties here, three have female leaders, and there are more women than ever in the Assembly and in the Executive. So why do I look back to the 1970s and the 1990s? Because sometimes you have to look back to get perspective on where we are today. Today, Northern Ireland is largely at peace. Yes, there are still some people looking to take us backwards, but the overwhelming majority of people see that the future lies in politics and in persuasion. Today, some in public life are still targets and still have to be aware of their personal security. But for the most chief executives on this call, security is not a daily thought for you or your family. Today, Northern Ireland is known across the world as a country where not only peace is being made, but where some of our best brains are working in cybersecurity and they're living and working here in Northern Ireland. Today, Northern Ireland is known for our thriving technology sector, our successful agri-food sector, and having a world-famous heavy engineering sector. Before COVID-19, we had gone from a standing start to almost needing traffic calming measures for the cruise ships coming up Belfast Lock, such was their volume. And I look forward to the day when our tourism offering can once again open its doors and welcome everybody to our shores. When I came into ministerial office in the old Department of Enterprise, Trade and Investment, when work started to plan, 
for all the different strategies, the agri strategies, the energy strategies, it required vision. When we decided to put money on the table and build the Titanic Museum, it required vision. When we decided to reach out to our diaspora across the globe, fire them up and give them the tools to sell this place we are proud to call home, it required vision. And I well remember arriving off many a long haul flight for a quick one or two nights crammed schedule where you jumped in and out of taxis to speak to people who had left our shores and made their home in Asia, North America, the Middle East and Africa. Indeed, with three children all at school, no one needs to explain to me the importance of good childcare. I know because I have lived it. And I will keep campaigning for better childcare. It's when you're in a mini cab in, in Cape Town and your son calls to ask where his clean rugby kit is, then you fully appreciate the importance of being an organized parent, having a superb support team at home around you, and remembering to most people, the most important people, you will always just be mom or Arlene. And I look across the world now at the network of diaspora, which is so critical to the success of Invest Northern Ireland and Tourism Northern Ireland, and they go out to make this wonderful place uh, a place to come and visit. But it all had to start somewhere. A few weeks ago, I was speaking to a media conference on International Women's Day, and I reminded them that I don't seek special privileges because I'm a woman. I just want the same opportunities as a man. I don't believe in quotas for women in public life. I believe it's important to have a fair crack at the job. I don't want women in jobs because of a mathematical formula. I want them in jobs because they are the best for the role. And one of the other areas I addressed at that conference was the role of social media for women in the public arena. When anyone steps into the public square and seeks to advance their ideas, there will be debate. And of course, that is quite legitimate. It's perfectly acceptable for someone else around the table to say, I don't agree with you, and here's why. What is not acceptable is for people around the table to mark out an opponent and then enlist the services of an anonymous online lynch mob to systematically target and harass women about their relationship status, their children, their partner, their appearance, and the list goes on. Many people ask me what's next for Arlene Foster, and I'm frankly not that sure at the moment. But with every fibre in my being, I will work to ensure that the obstacles to women in public life are removed by the roots. I want to be positive about female leadership because there is much to be positive about. But being positive and reflecting on the increase in female participation should not make us blind to these challenges. I said recently that one of the biggest obstacles to being a woman in public life today is the constant social media trolling. The threats and the lies do take their toll, not just on you, but on those around you. The important thing for me is to know how to deal with it, to have a belief in myself and know that social media is not real, but rather it is the sad outpouring of people with real deficiencies in their own lives. The anonymity of social media gives people a sense of invincibility. I want to tackle that. There must be a verification process where the platforms 
at least know who really owns the account. I want the social media companies to recognize their responsibilities to women in public life, whether it's Google, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter or Snapchat. They can't just step back as the publisher and wash their hands of the problem. It would be the equivalent of the government building roads without speed limits or our engineering sector making heavy plant without guardrails. So in conclusion, I do want to thank you as chief executives and leaders in your own field for the vision and hard work which you contribute every day to making Northern Ireland a better place. Whether in 1921, the 1970s or in 2021, our people have always been our best and most important asset. Thank you. Thank you, First Minister. Deputy First Minister, I now invite you to speak. Thank you. Thank you, Karen, and good afternoon to everybody um, on the call. And I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to participate in today's event because I think this is one of the most crucial issues that are facing um, us today, the role and the treatment of women in our society and the importance of the role of women in leadership positions. And I think, as already touched on in recent weeks, there's been a lot of attention in, in, uh, in the media over the last weeks and months even, in terms of gender equality or inequality, as the case quite often is, and the very many issues that are faced by women um, on a daily uh, basis. And there's no doubt that the pandemic has also shown a spotlight on a lot of those obstacles. And unfortunately, new barriers to equality have also been created as a direct result of the pandemic. So there's no doubt that in my mind that women have been affected by, disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And as we know is often the case, Additional responsibility often falls to the women right across society. Many are facing poverty and hardship. And sadly, there's also been a rise in domestic violence. So I think it's important that we continue the momentum and broaden the discussion to try allow us all that space to understand the issues, to remove barriers to equality and to help to create an environment where more women can step forward as leaders. Whenever we talk about women in leadership, um, what I would say, first of all, is that we're not talking just about women in public or political life, because there's, as we all know, and many are on this meeting this morning or this afternoon, there are female leaders across all walks of life and, and in all parts of society. Women working in the coalface in their communities, making a huge difference in people's lives, bringing about positive change. Women at the heart of their family, women who are leading the way in business and industry, women in media who are powerful voices and advocates for change. And you know, I think, my goodness, whenever you reflect on the year that's been, we've had phenomenal leadership um, from women right across health and social care and um, working on the front line responding to the pandemic. Yet, whatever the role, the sad reality is this, that women are not treated equally or fairly by this society. We're routinely overlooked. Women are ignored. They're denigrated and they're attacked because simply because they're a woman. So I want to talk to you today a little about my own experience, some of the challenges I faced along the way, and how positive influences can make a real difference in a leadership journey. I'm very lucky because growing up, I had very strong female role models around me who definitely helped shape me into the woman that I am today. My inspiration was certainly very much my own mummy and also my two grannies. And Arlene's heard me um, speak about this before. Um, because my two grannies were both brilliant women, both very different characters. One was a real extrovert, very spirited, certainly very vocal. 
And the other was softly spoken, a demure, pragmatic woman and quite understated. And I always claim that I'm a wee bit of both of them. And I'm proud to be a wee bit of both of them. Um, they were certainly a really strong influence for me and always a great support to me, as was my mummy. And, you know, she's a very strong woman. She's been a constant source of strength and support for me. So I don't have to look too far from home for where I get my influence. My own leadership journey started whenever I was 16 and my daughter had just been born. I was still in full-time education. I was becoming active in the community because I wanted to deliver change and I wanted to make it happen. And that was only made possible for me because my mum gave up her job and her work to allow me to fulfill my potential. I was so fortunate to have that support, but I'm also very aware that there are so many girls out there that don't have that support. Many are feeling overwhelmed by their circumstances or feel under huge pressure. So I think there's a role for all of us in this, um, in reaching out, in showing solidarity, in showing respect for each other, not just in our words, but also in our actions. When it comes to my political journey, I was in my 20s when I first entered elected politics in 2005. And it was shocking just at that time, whenever I went into local government, to see just the, the, how underrepresented women were in local government. Two years or a number of years later, five years later, I became the council's first ever female mayor in 2010. And even now, only around a quarter of all of our councillors are women and around a third of MLAs are women. And whilst women are still massively underrepresented, there's been huge progress and the amount of progress that has been made is really quite remarkable, particularly the representation of women in senior public roles and the visibility of female leadership. Myself and Arlene working as joint leaders um, of the executive for the last 16 months, leading through one of the most challenging times any administration has ever faced is significant progress. Four other female uh, ministers, Diane, Georgie, Nicola and Naomi. And we also had Carol serving as minister for a number of months also. Jenny Piper, who you're going to hear from um, next, leading a workforce of 23,000 um, people as head of the civil service. Katrina Godfrey, Tracy Maharg, Sue Gray, all leading departments as permanent secretaries and Brenda King as the Attorney General. Now that is um, progress. And for me personally, the fact that two women, myself and Mary Lou MacDonald, are the leaders of the largest political party on this island is something that I am immensely proud of. I believe that Mary Lou MacDonald will be the first female Taoiseach and that it will be transformative for government in Dublin. So we have undoubtedly come a very long way and we should rightly celebrate that. But we also can't allow the visible progress that we can see um, to become a smokescreen for the inequalities that still exist on a huge scale. As we all know, women continue to face barriers and bias at every turn. It's the lived experience of women right across our society. The truth is that women in public life are held to a different standard to uh, men, male, male colleagues. It's not, not level playing field. Politics and government is difficult at the best of times and our job is constantly challenging. But as women, we're constantly swimming upstream against a constant undercurrent of misogyny and abuse. Some of the commentary around women in political leadership is reprehensible. We get comments about the men behind the scenes pulling their strings as if we're some kind of um, puppets doing the men's bidding. And one just, one just suppose, strong example from my own experience is whenever I took over from Martin McGuinness in my role here in the Assembly, there were images circulating of me uh, as a tiny wee woman character inside Jerry Adams' shirt, shirt pocket. Um, so that's the inference, of course, that I couldn't possibly lead in my own right. That's a constant barrage that women face, you know, attempting to belittle and discredit because we are female. 
And misogyny has been a constant malignant presence in, I think, most uh, women in political leadership's uh, experience. You constantly face the derogatory comments about your appearance, threats of physical and sexual violence, death threats, threats to our families, all because we've dared to put ourselves out there to lead, to represent and to make a voice heard. And I am not um, by any means alone in that. Um, every day I see examples of that by abuse against women. And the I also see the devastation that it causes in people's lives. I think there can be a perception because you put yourself to be active in public life that all aspects of your life are for a game, that you should take whatever's thrown at you. Well, it's not okay. It's just simply not okay. And we need to show people that it's not okay. The fact that we're still talking in 2021 about making sure 50% of our population are treated as equals is a real travesty. It's a sad indictment of society. Gender equality isn't an option, it's a human right. So whether it's healthcare, employment or equal pay, women's rights are human rights. But change won't happen unless we work together to make it happen. Unless we all show personal and collective leadership to drive it. And we need to remove all the barriers to women's participation and progression in all parts of society. So that does mean, uh, and I agree with Arlene, tackling the root causes of misogyny, to change attitudes and to change behaviours. That will very much be at the focus of the executive strategy to tackle all forms of violence against women and girls. And the gender equality strategy that's been brought forward by Communities Minister Georgie Hargy will aim to address the structural inequalities and obstacles that directly affect women's everyday lives. So we all need to do something about it. Action must be taken to remove the barriers by finding and delivering solutions to affect change. So whether that's affordable childcare, flexible working arrangements or closing the gender pay gap. All of us have a role to play in supporting women, to come forward and showing them that there is a meaningful place for women in leadership. So just to finish uh, with this last point, to offer some advice to uh, other women and to girls, I would say to you all, you are enough. You are enough. Don't be put off by people who would seek to undermine you or criticise you. Believe in yourself. Push yourself. Take yourself out of your comfort zone as much as you can and make yourself heard because your voice matters and people need to hear your voice. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy First Minister. I now invite the Interim Head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service, Jenny Piper, to speak. Jenny, thank you. Thanks, Karen. Um, it's very difficult to, uh, to follow on from uh, the journeys and reflections of two uh, remarkable female leaders. Uh, I never uh, imagined that I would end up uh, in my career working with them at the very centre of government here. Um, and much of what they have said and reflected really does resonate with me, even though um, I'm not uh, out there as visible as they are in public life. Um, I've been happy for most of my civil service career to be uh, in the background. Uh, someone once commented to me that I've spent uh, most of my career uh, dealing with 50 shades of men in grey. It's, I'm not going to, to speak for very long. I just want to give you maybe a few little reflections on, on my journey, uh, my personal journey through the civil service. Like the First Minister, um, I'm a graduate for, from uh, Queen's University. Uh, I was the first in my family to go to university. Uh, both my parents had scholarships from their schools that would have allowed them both uh, to study classics. Uh, if they had gone to university, uh, if they'd gone to Queen's, 
uh, I believe they would have met, uh, but neither of them were able to, uh, to take up their scholarships because their families needed them uh, to go out and earn a wage uh, and bring, uh, bring money into the household. That had a very profound impact on both of them in terms of their ambitions for their children. And I was the eldest of, of three girls. So there was always very strong support for me to follow the academic path, which they were unable to follow. But it's also interesting that both my parents started life as uh, administrative assistants in the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Both became very active uh, in the trade union movement. Uh, my father was posted to the benefits office, the brew as it was in Enniskillen uh, and commuted uh, from uh, Kinnegar in Hollywood every weekend. Uh, my mother was living off the Raven Hill Road and was working um, in a typing pool in um, Castle Buildings. They were both active in the trade union uh, movement. Uh, they met after a couple of years in the civil service, uh, fell in love and married and my mother promptly had to resign because of the marriage bar. It was not an issue that my father might give up his career. She had to give up her career as well. And that again had a very profound effect on, on them uh, and on me in terms of my values. Uh, and the fact that uh, neither, uh, neither of them had all of the opportunities that they once hoped for. And my mother was the one who was thwarted twice uh, in her ambitions uh, and I never wanted that. Uh, they never wanted that for me and I never wanted it for my children or indeed for any uh, of my uh, friends and family. Following my graduation from Queen's, um, I too followed the family path and joined the uh, administrative ranks of the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Uh, I had a range of posts across a number of departments. Um, I think uh, I had the opportunity to move to a variety of posts and I think that variety is still there in the civil service and um, there are opportunities good opportunities for people to do challenging and rewarding work but sometimes you have to seek those out um, and I'll be frank I learned as much if not more from poor managers along the way as I worked my way through the civil service I learned as much if not more from poor leaders um, and frankly all my managers uh, up until I reached senior level in the civil service were male. Uh, that was just the way it was. I'm pleased to say the representation in the civil service now at the senior ranks uh, is around about 41% and both First and Deputy First Minister have, have referred to that. But back in 2000, uh, it was only around 10% of the civil service. The gender balance is now much more reflective, but my experience was very much uh, of being challenged to hold my own alongside male colleagues. And when I wanted to start a family, the expectation was that that would be the end of my civil service career and the end of my, my journey. My first senior post was as Director of Energy Policy in what's now the Department for the Economy. And again, that was seen as very much a role that was a male preserve. Energy was felt to be complex and challenging and an awful lot of the work was um, not seen as the sort of thing that a woman might want to do. But I viewed it very much as an opportunity. Um, and uh, I think I, I learned a lot uh, about resilience and facing challenges during that post. And 
taking that opportunity led in due course to my promotion to Deputy Permanent Secretary in 2011. And I think it's that same, that same approach to being willing to choose challenges and perhaps to try and sometimes fail. Um, that, that desire to be challenged led me in 2013 to leave the civil service and take on the role of Chief Executive of the Utility Regulator, the first woman ever to hold that post in the 25 year history of the regulator. And that again uh, tested my own leadership and resilience as I was running my own uh, organization. It was a non-ministerial government department and, and I hope First and Deputy First Minister will forgive me and understand when I say that the best thing about running a non-ministerial government department was the non-ministerial bit. Um, it did allow me a degree of freedom and flexibility. Um, and when I retired from that post in October, uh, I, I didn't envisage that I would be invited to take on the role of interim head of, of the Northern Ireland Civil Service, uh, the first woman to hold that position in the 100 year history of the Northern Ireland Civil Service. And as Deputy First Minister has said, uh, one of four women in the, the very top tiers of government alongside First and Deputy, uh, our Attorney General Brenda King uh, is in a prominent role. So. I'm in this role at a, at a critical time for um, everyone in Northern Ireland uh, and a critical time for our government. The key issues probably uh, on, in my entry are, are around our response uh, as a civil service to supporting the executive in its response to COVID and in developing a recovery plan. And linked to this is our ongoing work to bring forward a programme for government focused on the best possible outcomes uh, of societal wellbeing for everyone here. Reform of the civil service is uh, a huge challenge and ensuring that it is diverse and inclusive is one of the things that I've been particularly active in supporting. Many years, for many years in the civil service, like many employers, uh, the focus was on equity and many believed and some still do that we should treat everyone the same, particularly in terms of religious or community background and the word was that it was a good thing to be gender or colorblind. But my experience is that this approach is fundamentally flawed because it ignores the power and privilege which often create advantages and barriers to opportunity. And we need to understand those barriers and design ways to remove those if we as a civil service are to be reflective of society as a whole here. And we have made a lot of progress through our diversity and inclusion work. Uh, in terms of women in the civil service, uh, certainly at the senior ranks, there have been huge changes. But it is a fact that women in the Northern Ireland civil, civil service are still underrepresented at every grade compared to the wider labour force. And we have other work to do beyond just uh, the issue of men and women in the civil service. When we look at disability, we've got about five and a half percent of civil servants who have a declared disability compared to almost 12% in the wider Northern Ireland population. In terms of minority backgrounds, 0.4 of the civil service workforce is from a minority background against a Northern Ireland population comparator of around 2%. And when we look at our LGBT colleagues, less than 3% have the same sex orientation and 1% have an orientation towards both sexes. 
but we have such poor information. We only have information available for 14% of civil service staff, and that is unlikely to be representative of the civil service as a whole. So this is an area we really do need to tackle if we are seen to be serious about diversity and inclusion. Our people strategy and an ambitious diversity and inclusion programme is something that I have been active in supporting. And that has been a priority uh, for the civil service and will continue to be for some years to come. And the final thing in my entry, uh, and I will finish on this, um, is, is uh, one of the most challenging aspects of my job, and that's uh, to do myself out of the role. Um, I am on, under contract until the end of July, and at the moment we're going through a process to find a permanent replacement. Um, and it's been interesting to see uh, the range of people who have come forward. I'm very pleased that more than 50% of the applicants uh, for the head of the civil service um, have been female. That tells you something in comparison to the range of applications that we've had in the past. Thank you, Jenny. And thank you to all three of our guest speakers for such honest and fascinating reflections. We are delighted that a great number of questions have been submitted from our audience and we thank you for taking the time to send these in both in advance of the event and during the, the live question chat option. In order to cover as much ground as possible in the time that we have, the team has gathered the questions into broad topics and we will try and get through as many of these as we can. So to begin with, I will ask a question and invite each of our guest speakers to respond. So all three of you have very generously shared about the early stages of your careers. And the question has come in, do you think there is enough support currently available to aspiring female leaders in business and politics? First Minister, if you respond first, please, then the Deputy First Minister and followed by Jenny. Thank you. So thank you. The answer is there's never enough um, support, I think, for uh, women wanting to come forward. I tried to explain where the genesis was in my comments uh, for myself to come forward. It was a, a personal journey for me, but I do think that there needs to be more support available. And of course, it has to be different support because pe different people will want different types of support. Some people need to be encouraged um, and done in a very sort of um, colloquial way. Others will like a more structured way uh, to having that development uh, made available to them. Uh, I do think the Queens have themselves made great strides in, in supporting young people uh, to move forward. Um, and I think that is important. Uh, but I do think there's always a need to have more support uh, and uh, there will never be enough support for women uh, to come forward because unfortunately those attitudinal barriers that I identified way back when I was a, a student at Queen's are still very much uh, around today and uh, we still see them manifested today in very many different ways of course because we do have social media which allows people to spew out things that ordinarily we wouldn't have heard in the 70s and 80s. Just to add, I suppose, to, to that, um, Karen, I think, I mean, Arlene, that's absolutely right. There's never enough support. We should always be pushing for more. Um, and while that's in any, in any walk of life, to try to encourage women to um, to come forward. So, yeah, if you can't see it, you can't be it. You don't understand that where you fit into it. So I think that the the increased representation in women across all fields is, is really, really important and sending a clear message that this is doable. This is for 
women. Um, so I think that what when it comes to politics, in particular, political parties have responsibility to encourage women to help build the capacity of their team, you know, to find ways to break down the barriers. And then in government itself, we have work to do around, you know, equality at the heart of all decision making, you know, looking at things, things through a gender lens. You know, we have the um, equality impact assessments, all that work's done that's really, really important. But it's really, really important that uh, that in politics that we deliver for everybody that we represent, um, including um, females. And I also think that men have a role to play in this as well. You know, that um, quite often it's easy to sit back and say, well, sure, that's the men and this is the women. I think that's not a step, life's not like that. Um, I think there's a support role to be played across the board um, to encourage um, to encourage more women to come forward. So, as I said in my opening remarks, I think it's a collective effort and there's not one thing. There's many things that, that can be done that can actually help improve the picture. And look, uh, as, as the interim head of one of the, the biggest employers, twenty almost 23,000 staff, um, it has taken the, a long time for the civil service to really put in place all of the necessary strategies uh, to remove barriers to women's progression and to promote uh, their equal representation. Um, just to list some of those, there's been a gender action plan um, to promote gender diversity at all grades. Um, we've had uh, development and participation of women's mentoring and leadership development programs, improved recruitment, advertising and the use of positive action statements to encourage women to apply, particularly in those grades where they're underrepresented. Um, we have uh, the ongoing development and support of an NICS women's network, uh, a range of family-friendly policies, um, and, and I think it's just important that we keep building on those gains um, because research makes it very clear that a diverse and inclusive workforce um, that is representative of society is going to deliver better outcomes, better policies, and better, more targeted and more appropriate uh, interventions with our citizens. So there's a good solid business reason for doing it as well as the equality reasons which we all recognise. Thank you all and maybe staying with Jenny for the next question. There is research in psychology and leadership showing that there is a female leadership advantage during times of crisis and our questioner asks do you think your gender has played a role in the handling of crises throughout your career? It's a really, a really interesting question, and, and I'm not sure I necessarily agree with, with that sort of a generalisation um, that there is an advantage. I, just, I haven't read enough of the research, but I'm always a bit wary um, about generalisations like that. I think much may depend on the nature of the, of the crisis. But if I can maybe take an example from my own career, um, when I took over in the utility regulator, I, I did inherit uh, a crisis an organisation that was broken. It had lost the trust and confidence of stakeholders in the industry. It had lost the confidence um, of ministers. Um, and yet it had a critical role uh, in developing and building out uh, infrastructure that's essential to underpin our economy. Every single one of us uh, relies on uh, electricity for lighting, for heating, for powering all of our uh, devices. Uh, it's an essential service uh, for all of us. And yet stakeholders right across the community, the political environment and the business environment had lost trust and belief in the organisation. And the main reason for that was because of the very aggressive and macho approach 
which the utility regulator was taking to its work, hostile and challenging and very much seeing itself as, as a policeman, I suppose, waving a big stick to punish these big energy companies who were making a lot of money and taking a very aggressive approach. The culture of the whole organisation was extremely macho, even though the representation in the organisation was, was almost 50-50 in terms of gender balance. So the crisis there was that this was an organisation that wasn't going to be in existence if it didn't do something different. Uh, and I sought to reshape it very much with a, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it type of mantra. It wasn't what the regulator was doing that was wrong. Um, it was the way in which they were going about it. So I was the first regulator ever to fine and heavily fine a number of energy companies who breached their license. But I was able to do that in a way that reset the culture because it wasn't about the big stick all the time. It was about trying to work with the companies and get them to understand the nature of the service they were delivering. I have to say it did take four or five years before the culture change was embedded throughout the organization, that we were there to facilitate these essential services for customers and not just to stand in judgment over the energy companies. So I suppose it might depend on the crisis, um, but I think you know the range of skills, um, as the Deputy First Minister has said, having a range of skills to, to call on is probably more important than saying it's just a female issue or a male issue. That's great. Thank you very much, Jenny. For our next question, perhaps I could ask the First Minister to respond. So the audience are interested to learn views on the language associated with describing women in positions of responsibility. For example, a strong woman or a powerful woman, which describes persona rather than her role. And in contrast, a man might be described as holding a powerful position and be a strong and effective leader. Do you share these observations? And if you do, how might language be modernised? Well, this is a subject on which I'm sure the Deputy First Minister and I could talk about for quite some considerable time. Um, when you have two female leaders um, leading the country, uh, we have had everything uh, thrown at us. Um, male leaders apparently are passionate, uh, but women leaders are emotional. That's the sort of difference in language um, that we see a lot of the time. Uh, our disagreements, which all politicians have, particularly when you're in a five-party coalition and have such differing views on a wide range of issues, are described as catfights, which uh, I don't think I've ever seen a male disagreement described in that fashion. So the language that is used um, by our local media, and let's not forget, whilst there are some very talented female journalists in Northern Ireland. There are very few of them that make it to the top of the profession in Northern Ireland. And I think that some of the media need to look at their language. They do obviously want to get uh, a sexy headline that will grab readers' attention. But I think in doing so uh, on occasion, they really do a disservice um, to uh, their own uh, journalistic career and integrity. Uh, and frankly, I think they need to take a long, hard look at themselves because, um, you know, we are in a serious uh, job of work. Uh, Jenny has talked about um, having a balanced response. And if you have a representative organization, which I hope the executive is in terms of gender, 
then you will have a better understanding of the problems that people have to deal with in their everyday lives. And I think because of the fact that we have that gender balance, we have, nobody's saying we've had uh, a perfect uh, COVID-19, nobody has. But what we were able to do was to actually reflect uh, our own experiences through COVID-19, our own family's experiences, our community's experience, in a way that if you had just one set of people from one gender, I don't think would have happened. So I think it is important to have uh, representation uh, in any uh, decision-making organisation, but I would make an appeal that we do need to look at our language when we're talking about female participation, because what I want to do, and I've been really touched by the number of young women who have gotten in, in touch with me over this last 10 days. Uh, and they've said to me, they didn't know how important it was to have a female leader uh, in place. And they now do, now that I'm leaving uh, politics, they realise it was important to them to have a female leader in place. And I reflected in my remarks that I didn't realise that at the time when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister, to have a female Prime Minister was the most normal thing to me as a young woman because she was there. Uh, And likewise, I hope that we uh, collectively, all three of us, uh, inspire young women to see our jobs as something that they would aspire to do. And I really do hope that that's something uh, that comes through from today's discussion, but also comes through from the way in which we have done our jobs uh, over this past period of time. Thank you. And really following on from that, that the Vice Chancellor had highlighted earlier that the conversation between Elizabeth Kennedy Trudeau and Secretary Hillary Clinton, where Secretary Clinton reflected when the peace negotiations were going on in Northern Ireland in the beginning, there were no women around the table at all. And and she reflected on changes. And and I wonder if I could ask the Deputy First Minister to um, just maybe address the question how politics has changed from the time that you joined in terms of representation for women and what your vision is for those young women embarking on a career within politics. And just remembering again something that that you said towards the end of of your reflection and earlier on in the call that they they are enough. But what what would you say for for young women embarking on this career? To go in reverse, I would say anything's possible. Um, If you believe in something, then you can you can you know, it's half the battle and make that happen. So um, it's the, it's about, for all young women, it's about having the confidence and the courage to step forward. It's about having the proper support that we've talked about. But it's also about uh, making sure that uh, we all do whatever we can to encourage more women to come forward. When I reflect on, on how much has changed since, you know, from, from the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, 1998 era, and where we are today, we've all reflected on the changes in terms of um, the, the the number of female leaders that have come forward and the progress like that's been immense. It has been immense. It's not enough. Uh, we need more. Um, but certainly it's been a huge change. And the other thing that gives me a lot of confidence today is that ten years ago women wouldn't be sitting on a platform like this, or perhaps not not in the way in which they are today, talking about misogyny and calling it out, because we now have a whole different experience today because of social media. And you know the great way in which it gets us connected. However, the really damaging way in which it allows all the nonsense to, to be said uh, and, and to discredit and denigrate women on an ongoing basis. So I think, you know, the, the nature of politics, the engagement, all those things have meant it's very different. We've made a lot of progress, but certainly we have um, a way to go. But I do really welcome the fact that women are confident enough 
in bigger numbers to come forward and say, well, enough's enough, we're not having that. And then it makes it less comfortable for those that wish to pursue a path of misogyny to, to continue to do that. So I think that that's really, really important. So the message to the, certainly to the young uh, political leader, someone who's thinking towards political leadership, you can do it. Absolutely, you can do it. If you believe in wanting to make people's lot better, then that's, this is something for you. Um, you find a political party that suits your your interests best. No, nobody will ever tick all your boxes, I'm sure, but um, you find the party that suits you best. You, you, you sign up and you, and you get engaged and you become active and you try to be the change. You try to bring about the change. And you know the, the worst thing that can happen, in, I think maybe Jenny said earlier about the, the, the male steel, the kind of typical image of politics in the past is very much changing. And I think that's a, that's a good thing, but you need decision makers to reflect society which they represent that will lead to better decision making. Thank you, Deputy First Minister. We, we have a question that I'd like to direct to, to Jenny. It's come in from, from a number of members of the audience. And, and it's really around, do people demand higher standards from female leaders? And is it impossibly so where they have a different standards that they expect from um, imperfect male leaders um, versus their, their female leaders? I wonder if you could address that question. I think my experience is that uh, women set the highest standards for themselves, uh, more so even than uh, colleagues around them. Um, maybe that's inevitable as the eldest of three girls, you know, classic overachiever. Um, but um, I, I think women tend to view society as expecting them to be able to multitask. And my experience is definitely um, through my career, I had to work twice as hard to be thought of as half a, as good. And I know that's an old hackneyed phrase, but it was very true and very relevant through the vast bulk of my civil service career. I think women are demanding of one another, but I think they're also more forgiving of one another because they, they perhaps have more of those empathetic skills that recognise in themselves. You know, I, as I listen to, to First and Deputy First Minister, um, I haven't followed a political route, but yet very much of what they have said about their own journeys and the challenges that they have faced completely resonates. Um, and, you know, as, as women, um, I see how hard they work uh, to juggle their family life, their working life, their political life, and being in uh, in the spotlight all the time, uh, a spotlight which suggests they can't do right for doing wrong. And yet I see them able to put aside political differences and really work together and empathise uh, whenever it comes to very many of the cross-cutting issues uh, and challenges that face us in Northern Ireland. So um, we're our own worst critics, sadly. Uh, most of the time, nobody... Uh, nobody sets higher standards for us, um, but that's still in some areas. That's you know, um, it's it's still the case that women feel they do need um, to to overachieve. Um, my my experience of that is if the only thing you're worried about uh, is making a mistake or failing, you can pick yourself back up again, dust yourself off, and try again. And that's an approach that I think is more common for men than for women. And maybe that's one of the lessons that we really do need to learn. It's okay to make a mistake. You can move on. The thing to avoid is giving up. Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger sometimes. So thank you for that. Time is moving uh, impossibly quickly. And we are going to come to our last question for all three of our speakers. And it's a, a quick fire question and it's in three parts. 
So we'll come to um, our Deputy First Minister first, and then to Jenny, and then to our First Minister. So this is the, the last question, which is in three parts. So can you tell us one book you really enjoy reading? Then two personal characteristics that you think are most important in the leader. And finally, who would you like to say well done to you? Um, people who lead want to be considered as good leaders, by whom would you most want to be congratulated? Thank you, Karen. These are always the most difficult questions when you're on a platform like this, <laughs> when it comes to reflecting something personally. Um, my, my first favourite book was To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, and I still like to pick that up every now and again. I always really enjoyed reading that. Um, the characteristics, I mean, Jenny used the word empathetic, and I think that's really important in political leadership. You have to hear people. You have to understand where they're coming from. You don't have to always agree, but if you understand where you're coming, where they're coming from, then it's really helpful to shape a way forward and plan a way forward. So I think that's one thing. And secondly, I suppose I would say having the the vision or the courage to be able to try to make things better for everybody. Um, I think that's really, really important. Um, so having the confidence in yourself to do that and to take people with you. And um, in terms of who do you want to look to, I mean, everybody. I'm, I'm, you know, the Deputy First Minister working alongside Arling want to be that for everybody that we represent. You know, particular, it's, it's a privilege to hold elected office and it's a privilege to be given a mandate by the people to represent them. So. It's about using that wisely, um, not just your own core voter support base, but also that wider society that you're you're there genuinely trying to do your best. Thank you. And next, Jenny. So uh, the book I would choose would be Jonathan Livingstone Seagull by Richard Bach. Um, it can be read as a simple children's story about a seagull who liked to do mad things up in the air. Um, or it can be read as a really inspirational uh, leadership and development book about pushing yourself to try something different, to go a little bit further and um, not to be afraid sometimes of making a mistake and getting caught on an air current that brings you down. You can always lift your wings and, and try something try something new or try something different. In terms of characteristics, O'Crumbs, um, Deputy First Minister has talked about confidence. I suppose for me, um, as, a, as a public servant, I think integrity is, is hugely uh, important or authenticity. Um, but my own style, I think, I, I like to think I bring enthusiasm um, and positivity. Sorry, I've just realised I've got four words in there. Miles was never my strong point. And in terms of who, who I want to, uh, to, to say well done to me, um, actually, the, the, the only ones that really, really matter to me um, I would say would be my my son, my daughter, and, uh, and my husband. When it comes to this role at the end of my career, um, they're the ones that um, they're the ones that really matter to me. Thank you, Jenny, and finally to the first minister. Okay, so uh, in terms of book, I would um, I, I, I quite enjoy reading, so I could pick a number of books. But the one I'm going to pick uh, for today's session is *Eve Was Framed*, um, the book by Barna Selina Kennedy which is a, an excellent book that came out just actually when I was at Queen's. Uh, and I remember her coming to Queen's to launch the book. And I went and um, I, I got her to sign my copy. And I always remember she wrote in the book, The Law Needs Good Women. And uh, I, I always I have it on my bookshelf. And, and it's something that, that I love looking back on. Of course, it was looking at the experience of women within the criminal justice system 
either from the point of view of a practitioner or as a victim or indeed a defendant. So it, it, it's a very good read. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that she pointed out then back in the early 1990s are, are still existing uh, today. Um, personal characteristics. Um, you see, this is when you see if there's any difference between Michelle and I and the things that we pick. But uh, I would also say there's a need to have the ability to listen. Um, to listen to what, not just what your colleagues and uh, the people who you lead in your own party are saying, but the wider community. Obviously, when you're in a first ministerial position, you have that wider role, uh, which isn't just party political. You have the role of being uh, the leader for everyone in Northern Ireland. So the ability to listen and uh, decisiveness, um, I think, is also something that I would put high up on the list uh, of characteristics because nobody likes a leader who can't make up their mind. Um, and then uh, in terms of who do I want to be considered by a good leader, again, uh, I think um, as someone who's stepping down from public office and doesn't have to go back to the electorate again for um, that stamp of approval, I do, however, still think that you want to be, as a politician, considered to be a good leader by your electorate uh, and the people who put you in the first place. So it's 18 years since I became uh, an MLA for Fermanagh and South Tyrone, and um, I'm I'm still concerned what the people of Fermanagh and South Tyrone think about me 18 years later. Well, thank you to all three of our speakers and to our audience for submitting questions that's generated a really interesting and enjoyable discussion. I will now hand back to Queen's President and Vice-Chancellor, Professor Greer, to, to close the event. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Can I extend my thanks to all of our speakers for their invaluable insight into their leadership journeys. They've highlighted the challenges they've not only faced but overcome through their courage and commitment, their authenticity, their persistence, and perhaps most importantly, their inspirational example. As has been highlighted, many issues remain and sadly some new barriers have emerged. So at Queen's we know there's still much work to be done. Work that will ensure equality of opportunity for all in Northern Ireland and make it an even better place. Here at Queen's, we're completely committed to delivering on that agenda, working in partnership with industry, with business, with the public sector, and of course, the executive. So thank you all once again for coming to this event. I look forward to welcoming you in person in the very near future. Thank you and goodbye. In this series, subscribe to Queen's University Belfast Shaping a Better World podcast on all the main podcast platforms.